Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. Uh, I am Chris Osborne, one of your hosts here. We're joined by my colleague and partner in crime, Michael Kahn. Uh, we are the founders of Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, formerly known as Real-Time CLE, and we are a nationwide provider of continuing legal education as well as professional development programs focused on mental health and well-being and how those topics intersect with ethics, ethical decision-making, diversity and inclusion, and sexual misconduct prevention. And we are excited today to have as our guests uh, the authors of a cool book called How to Be a Lawyer, uh, The Path from Law School to Success, Jason Mendelson and Alex Paul. Uh, and so we're excited to get right into our content today. Thanks for being with us. Uh, if you do enjoy our content, please be sure to like, subscribe, and review the Thriving Lawyers podcast. Uh, so, uh, Michael, welcome. Uh, I don't think we've done a, a podcast together in a while. We've we've sort of handed off the, the hosting duty. So, how are you feeling? I know it's it's exciting. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll share a little bit of the sausage making. We actually struggled to get this started this morning <laughs> because we hadn't done it together for a while. So, we've got four <laughs> folks on this podcast. That's uh, that's. That'll, this is going to be fun. Absolutely. So um, Jason and Alex, would you guys please introduce yourselves and introduce yourselves. I'm going to give you kind of a, just a, a, a softball question. Like obviously kind of what was your past sort of, what do you do now, I guess? And we'll get more of the backstory and history of, of kind of your career as a lawyer. Um, but I would say, I want to give you this sort of icebreaker question of what's the, the most curious or strangest thing that you experienced either practicing or teaching about law? What's something kind of curious or like just one of those head scratcher, weird sort of moments? Well, this is Jason Mendelson. Uh, my head scratching moment would be I was working as a general counsel at a venture capital firm. We were winding down a company. We had hired a person to, you know, do all the cross the T's and dot the I's and wind this thing down so there wouldn't be any liability left for the, uh, board. And by the way, in venture, half the companies go bankrupt. So this is not an abnormal thing. And I got a call from somebody saying, hey, where's all the money in the account? And I said, what? <laughs> Turns out the guy wasn't who he said he was that was doing the wind down. He was hired by the other venture firm, not me. And he actually took the money and, as far as we know, bought missiles for Hezbollah and Syria <laughs> and was found several years wow. later, extracted out of the Middle East. And I was one of the chief witnesses for his trial. Wow. So how about wow. that? Is that is that a head scratcher? Because that I is still, a head scratcher. That's yeah. a full body scratcher, actually. <laughs> so I know Alex, what's yours? Uh, <laughs> how are you going to top terrorism? Yeah, connection? yeah certainly nothing that exciting. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I would say that uh, when I was a young lawyer, one of the things that I decided to do because of my experience in law school is to put myself out there in uncomfortable situations. So I was taking pro bono, uh, low asset level divorce cases and very contentious divorce and was um, in the mediation and the uh, spouse of my client was the, the husband uh, turned on me and started personally attacking me. And this is the early days of the internet had found out things on the internet about me uh, about my young kids and, 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 and it just blew me away. I, I know divorce lawyers are 
familiar with this all the time. Family law, it's a very acrimonious setting, but that you have to stay calm and, you know, then afterwards go for a restraining order. <laughs> but, but, you know, just as that, one does. <laughs> right. But as that quick, you know, the quick cross from, you know, professional um, where things are, are, are difficult into a very personal and kind of vicious uh, space was uh, still walk away from that. And, you know, uh, suddenly Michael and Chris were going, who did we just get on this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is, this is local color. This is, this is, uh, we we like interesting people who have done interesting things uh, for sure. Michael, do you have an answer to my question? I do actually. Uh, this is when I, I was not a lawyer yet. I was still in law school and I, I worked for a summer for a criminal defense lawyer in uh, Pennsylvania. I went to law school at Dickinson in Carlisle. And uh, we went to this guy was very eccentric, very eccentric. He didn't have any ties or jackets or anything. I remember when a, a station TV station was coming to interview him. He said, give me your jacket and your tie. He had to borrow my my jacket and tie to do the interview. But I went to a hearing with him. I don't remember what the hearing was about. He was defending a guy who was uh, up for, for murder and potentially capital punishment. And he was examining a, a woman on the stand and he asked her, do you, do you see the person who you are accusing of murder here in the room? And she points to me. and and that's 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 not even the funniest part that's not even the funniest part he leads he leads that's funny but he leads over to me and he says you're effing going to jail (laughs) that's the best (laughs) and and you turned him and said you want it back and and i said you know there of course i knew i didn't kill anybody but there was a pair that i thought Oh my God! I'm going to jail. <laughs> could, that, could that happen? I mean, I could that, that happen? Yeah. Did I yeah. did I do something last night? Uh, Gosh, anyway. I don't know if I've heard that story. We've worked together over 15 years, and I I'm not sure I've heard that story. How has that not made it into a program? That's I know, crazy. right? Right. Was there yeah. a physical resemblance at all? <laughs> you know, I don't even remember. Actually, <laughs> he was too shocked. At the I was. Even care. <laughs> I know. And his name, I'll, I'll give the, the lawyer a shout out, William Kostopoulos. I think he's still practicing and uh, great guy, great guy to work uh-huh. for. Very, uh, as you could tell, fun guy to work for. And I learned a lot. Well, I mean, my only other, my only other question is what was your alibi? <laughs> I mean, you said yeah, it, was po- it was pause attraction, right? It was something around. The, around that. Yes, that's right. Good. That's yeah. good. One yeah, of nice. us got that joke. One of us got that joke. Nice. <laughs> well, yeah, my cousin Benny. All right, good. Yeah. All right. My, my answer to the question and, and sort of echoing a theme I'm, I'm sure we'll get into because your, your, your book is a great, uh, you know, I love that the motivation behind it is, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that we wish we had learned at some point in time, either in law school or certainly afterwards, except by, you know, other than by hook or by crook. And that's sort of, uh, so you guys have felt like kindred spirits because that's why, where are a lot of our CLEs have come from. A lot of yeah. the programming we've done is why didn't anybody tell us this in law school or prepare us for this? So mine is, I remember, uh, I was representing, I was working for a small law firm, still a fairly young lawyer. And we, I was introduced to this client by the partner I was working with said, uh, we have a guy who used to work for a car dealership. And he has been fired and he says it's because he blew the whistle on shady practices, you know, deceptive and, and you know, um, uh, fraudulent practices at a car dealership. 
And I remember the partner saying, this guy's a boy scout. He's so upright and honest and tells the truth. And I'm like, well, he's working for a car dealer, but okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and his, his, you know, his contention was that he had blown the whistle. And so he was trying to, you know, in, in, in North Carolina, we have at will employment. You can be fired for any reason, except for one that violates public policy. And one is if you're a whistleblower, if you're saying, Hey, I oppose these shady practices. And so I went and I was defending his deposition. And I, I kid you not, I think it was like a two day deposition, maybe three. I just sit there while they put down transaction after transaction that was shady and fraudulent, that his fingerprints were all over and things that he had done, you know, uh, had gotten himself like really nice tires at discount price, you know, with nobody's authorization, all this stuff. And I remember like almost screaming, guy, what else am I going to learn today? Because <laughs> he was so much not a Boy Scout. But I was not prepared for, you know, that. Uh, and I don't know, you know, if we had just hadn't asked him the right questions or hadn't said, well, tell us, you know, because he swore, you know, no, they're doing this and this is bad and selling cars before they're off the boat and all this. But he had done similar authorized similar things. So he and that case ended up going away. But I remember it because it was both tactically and the case was frustrating because we lost. We had to pull out of that thing and, and run from it, which was terrible feeling um, to happen on your watch. I didn't make it happen, but it happened and it kind of. But also, I remember coming unglued and like, you know, I don't know. I'm not equipped to handle this. This is, a, mm. a you know, not something that they said, by the way, sometimes your client's going to be a lion sack of you know what. And and you need to be able to, like you said, you know, keep your cool. And and, and we don't always, you know, there was certainly nothing when we went to law school about that. Um, so tell us a little bit about you guys journey kind of into how'd you get into law to start with? And then what was your journey sort of in practice and. How do you find yourself where you are today? Whoever wants to get first. I'll tell you what, I think the four of us should write a book about crazy things that have happened and we can invite <laughs> all our friends and that then is tie so it true. into what we actually learned. Right? Yes. So we, we, we can make I an like educational it. book that would oh, be interesting wow. to read because it would all be based around crazy stories like this. Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I, I love it. We, we would tell stories from the road because people share yeah. stuff with us yeah. as well. We're like, hey, actually, uh, actually, <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, this this is this isn't really a good idea. I remember as a I'm a I'm a mental health therapist now, and uh, you, you'd go to workshops and and hear the these master therapists talk about how these successful cl- uh, situations with clients that they've had, and it's all about their successes. And then someone came out of, with a book that the master client uh, therapist shared where they messed up. Mm. And it was so validating for me as a young therapist yeah. to see, oh, these guys aren't perfect or these women aren't perfect either. So I think you may have an idea after the podcast. Let's chat a little bit yeah, more yeah, about absolutely. this. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We'll call it How Not to Be a Lawyer. How Not to Be a Lawyer. How has nobody written that yet? How has nobody written that yet? Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. We'll, we'll keep this brief. I'll go first. And just so I never wanted to be a lawyer, probably like most people, I wanted to be a professional drummer and I was for a while and then I got injured uh, and ended up getting a degree in economics and being unemployed coming out of undergrad. Uh, I had taught myself hacking. So I went into software engineer for Anderson Consulting. They actually hired a non-computer science grad hacker. And I did that for a number of years and, and then decided one day I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. Arm was feeling wow. better. I was playing drums in Dallas a bit. I'm like, you know, if I did this entertainment lawyer thing and it doesn't work out, I'm an entertainment lawyer. But maybe I get back in music somehow in a roundabout way. I know, terrible idea. Go to go to Michigan for law school. 
uh, spent some time out in LA, uh, you know, inter- interviewing for that summer position at, you know, all the big entertainment law firms and realized, oh my gosh, this is not my people, right? These are not my people who are representing these, uh, these musicians. In my experience, many entertainment lawyers are sacks of something that you've already mentioned. <laughs> so I went back to uh, Michigan thinking I was going to drop out of law school. I met some people from the West Coast. They told me about this thing called venture capital and startups. I was told that I could keep my hair long and wear blue jeans and practice law. And since I had been a hacker, I'm like, okay, that might be my other thing. So sold. They <laughs> sold. So I went out, went out, worked for Cooley when I graduated. Incredible firm, incredible experience. Got hired away by a client to be the general counsel of the venture firm. Eventually became a venture capitalist, started my own venture firm out here in Boulder, Colorado, where I was a full-time venture capitalist, but also the general counsel until 2018. Along the way, I spent 11 years being an adjunct professor at CU Law, which was sort of the impetus for this book, right? The impetus was like watching all of my students graduate and then coming back over coffee going, hey, can you actually tell me what's going to happen when I graduate? (laughs) Um, And then in 2020, I I retired from everything and I've gone back into music full time. I now play drums with a number of well-known artists. I'm actually a producer. I'm going to produce Alla Black's next album. I just did his little single. And I spend a, a ton of time in the criminal justice reform space um, with an organization that I've created with my wife, along with some other organizations. And then Alex has been a dear friend for a while. Um, also, small world story, which I won't ruin his punchline. He's also uh, the CEO of the wealth management company that we use. Okay. And and then when I came up with the idea for the book, uh, I went to him first and we started talking about it. And, and, and then the book came alive. Just to, one more plug, the book is not just Alex and I as authors. We've got 24 other guest authors of all shapes, sizes, ages, yeah. ethnicities, and professions that, that give their uh, highlights and, and their, their wisdom as well. So that's been my, my path. And uh, I'll either shut up or hand it over to Alex. Well, before you jump to Alex, you got a yeah. name drop a little bit more. Like you said... <clears throat> Played drums for some folks. Like, who have you played for that we might have heard of? Uh, I've played for a bunch of folks. Uh, I, I, I mean, every, you know, Michael Kang, String Cheese Incident, Aloe Black, uh, mm-hmm. Judith Hill, uh, who else? In the old days, a bunch of the Detroit artists that were running around. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's been a Very great cool. career. Yeah. And then Jay Salen, I got to plug this. Jay Salen's my stage name, J-A-C-E-A-L-L-E-N. Uh, Jace re- Allen. Yeah, Jace released Allen. an album. Released an album last year. It's got about two and a half million hits so far. So, oh wow! See what I do as a as a soloist uh, that's out there as well. Is, is it just you playing drums on that album? No, no. Okay. Sing, produce instruments. Uh, oh. Guest al- guest artists like Beyonce's bass player Aki Burmis from Lake Street Dive, uh, uh, Avril Lavigne's musical director Brad Hargraves from Third Eye Blind. Fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. Paige Turner, who was one of the finalists in The Voice, she's my co-conspirator on the album. Nice. So, yeah. Also, one of the best names. Uh, Paige ever, Turner's a good been name. An artist. Yeah, yeah. she's been an author. Hey, Jason, have you seen the documentary "Count Me In" on Netflix? I have not yet. It's on. The, it's up next. It's very good. You'll. I loved it. I'm not a drummer. I think you'll really get into it. Thank you. Awesome. All right, Alex. Uh, so I, I, like Jason, I didn't know that I wanted to become a lawyer. I wanted to go into business. My father was a successful business person, entrepreneur, uh, really kind of uh, my my role model. And I was from a small town, central Wisconsin, blue collar town, 20,000 people. Uh, so, you know, I went to a small college and then uh, decided I wanted to go to law school because my dad's advice was 
he had a law degree and an MBA, and he said that his law degree was a lot more helpful to him in business. Huh. Uh, he said you can learn business by doing business. Uh, you can't, uh, at least in our country, learn the law by doing it. And that allowed him to assess risk uh, a lot more carefully in business. Okay. Um, so uh, I said, okay, first thing I want to do out of law school is go, or I mean, out of college is go to law school and looked at small law schools, small class sizes, settled on Northwestern, but made the classic mistake of thinking that Northwestern uh, Law School is in Evanston. Uh, and oh. after, after I was accepted, I went down there and realized it's, uh, it's in the city. That's right, uh, actually right, in Chicago, yes. Right downtown. So for a kid who's uh, 22, who's never lived in a town over 80,000 people, uh, <laughs> that was... Wow. That was it was quite a, a, a shock. Um, it was really good for me. And, and, you know, this is something I think we we touch on in the book is that getting outside of your comfort zone, putting yourself in uh, experiences that are, are challenging are really important. I think one thing that Jason and I see with a lot of attorneys is that um, when they go to law school, they have a preconceived notion. Maybe it's from TV. Maybe it's from family as to what kind of lawyer they want to be. Maybe it's a corporate lawyer, a litigator, whatever it could be. Um, but what we we found, and I think our careers, is that the serendipitous path is often the best. And it takes you places, opens your horizons, um, at least for me it did. And, and it was that experience in the urban city of, of Chicago. I thought I wanted to be a business lawyer, uh, actually got involved in the legal clinic, uh, really enjoyed uh, the litigation side. Probably wasn't very good at it, but it was uh, a very challenging experience and brought me all sorts of other cool things. I clerked for the SEC out of law school. I clerked on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which actually has a pretty big litigation component because you're reviewing a lot of court right. cases coming up through the, uh, the system and a lot of criminal law cases. So all of that made me, I think, a much better lawyer, and ultimately, I think a better business person. So when I moved to Colorado, uh, I followed my, my uh, idea of becoming an entrepreneur uh, and have started uh, three businesses. One is a trust company in Nevada. Uh, okay. The other is a, a multifamily office here in uh, Colorado, uh, and Jason's uh, a part of that. Uh, and then the other, the third one, which uh, does also work with Jason, some of his organizations is um, a philanthropy uh, digital platform uh, that makes giving uh, to um, charities and causes a lot easier. So using technology to improve the way we give, trying to remove the, the tax and compliance burden and get it focused on, on, the impact that that people want to make. Nice. So, so how did you guys first cross paths or run into each other then? Mutual friend at a party. Uh, we were, I, 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 this will be a joke if anybody was at that party. We were some of the youngest people at the party, which for those of you at home, uh, we're not young. Uh, <laughs> not anymore. That's no. what happened. Young at heart, young mm -hmm. in brain. But we would just spend at a party and, and, his wife and my wife hit it off and we hit it off and we just started hanging out. And then just, you know, it was one of those situations where we met socially, but there was quick, deep respect of what each of us had done, all four mm -hmm. of us. 
And, uh, and then we, my wife and I don't have kids. We love their kids. And I'm sorry, this is a terrible thing to say when you don't have kids, but we totally judge people by how cool their kids are. (laughs) (laughs) You're just being honest. Yeah. And so their kids are super freaking cool. So that added bonus points as well. Gotcha. Uh, Were you all still, either of you still in law at that point in time, or had you both kind of moved into more entrepreneurial things, I guess. I was still at Foundry Group, which is the name of the uh, venture firm that I started. So I was a lawyer up until I was a venture capitalist. But I, uh, even though we had a, we hired a general counsel in 2018, I was still doing law and still teaching at CU. Yeah, and I, I, I still actually have an of counsel relationship with a firm that I, I started the Colorado office of a Chicago firm that focuses on uh, tax planning, uh, trust and estate planning called Harrison. Uh, it's a pretty large national firm now. The founder of that firm is a very close friend of mine, uh, Lou Harrison. And uh, so, when I moved to Colorado, I worked with Lou to set up the the Colorado office. I don't I don't take on clients now. Uh, and Harrison has a a very uh, strong office in Denver, but um, okay. so still have a little bit of my foot in the door. But just to I still go, have a bar card. Still, <laughs> I'm still in good standing in the state of California. Yeah. And what you teach? Um, Jason, when you taught uh, at CU, did you teach the same class or different classes over time? No, I taught the same class. It was called VC 360, uh, Venture Capital 360. And it was the original idea was that it was going to be about the entire venture ecosystem from a standpoint of uh, people getting together to raise money as venture capitalists, to deploying that capital to folks like Galax or entrepreneurs. Then all of the things that can go right and wrong in those relationships, including the sticky fiduciary duty, things that can happen mm-hmm. when you're on the board of a company and a fiduciary duty to your limited partners as a venture capitalist. Um, and what it became was sort of a critical thinking course. <laughs> oh, because okay. we, 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 it was, I had a co-professor and the idea was that we, we, as we dove down years three, four, five, realized that what we're teaching were skills, negotiation skills, empathy skills, um, service skills. I mean, one of the things we talk about in the book is if you don't want to be a service provider, like if you think being a plumber sucks, don't become a lawyer. Right. It's no no different. Right. Right. (laughs) It's just, we get paid a little more and the, the problems are different, but really trying to get this into the students' brains of, you know, this was the predecessor of, of what sort of started the book, but that's that's what the class was. It still exists. I'll be guest lecturing uh, this fall, uh, but I don't do it full time anymore. COVID kind of beat it out of me doing it remote. Sure, sure. That was a big change for everybody, right? Um, my, well, I, I love that you guys, even as you, uh, and we, we probably, for, for we may have some listeners who who don't know exactly what venture capital means exactly, other than what we've seen kind of on, you know, TV shows like Billions and stuff. But in, in uh-huh. a sentence or two, <laughs> in a sentence or two, what would you say uh, venture capital involves? My, my attempted definition would be, you know, finding money and resources to help businesses get started. And that could be very simple, you know, small business, mom and pop things, but also complex, you know, high tech type stuff as well. But Am I close? I don't know. You're close. You're close. Venture capital traditionally works this way. You have a general partnership, which is a bunch of investors or a few investors that one has uh, relationships with people who want access to startups. And so first thing is I go and I find investors, which could be anywhere from high net worth individuals to, uh, you know, 
endowments at universities to insurance companies to whatever it is. And I raise money into a fund. And then I go locate entrepreneurs who are creating startups. And I want to use the word startups because startups are not mom and pop businesses. These are things that can grow exponentially quickly. If you look at the risk profile I mentioned earlier, half of startups go out of business. What I didn't tell you is that 20 or 30% of the other ones barely return your money. So this is an incredibly risky uh, proposition. So we have to invest in companies that are going to have massive scale potential, change the world sort of uh, possibilities in in order to make their risk reward uh, calculation work out. Okay. So what you're saying is given how few of them are actually going to succeed and get decent returns, they better be really good returns when it happens. Yeah. Like, you know, 10, 10x at a minimum, if you're an early stage investor, which is what I was for my career. Uh, But it's, you can have a hundred X or a thousand X. So I'm curious, like, how did, how did you all embrace that mindset when, you know, what we typically associate with, with the practice of law and legal education is, the opposite. Like we are the most possibly risk averse profession there is because we're trained to say, look out for this, this bad thing could happen. Don't do it because of this. How do you get, you know, those mindsets together? Yeah. I mean, I'll take a first swipe and I mean, look, I think law school is super useful and then super stupid at the same time. I mean, we spend three years walking into classrooms where something goes wrong every day. There's never a story about Jack and Jill get together and have a contract and the business goes great at the end. <laughs> right. It's like somebody ends up with a hairy hand or somebody's running down a freaking platform <laughs> with fireworks or like there's all this just everything goes wrong. And so risk is beaten out of us. I mean, I would love to hear Alex's answer of what gave him the risk tolerance to start three companies. I will just say that as a venture capitalist, you either fall in love with risk or you die. And a lot of lawyers who try to become venture capitalists were unsuccessful. I think for me, it was supporting myself as a drummer. It doesn't get much riskier than that. Like you're literally hand to mouth, gig to gig. Yeah. I never lost that risk taking attitude. This, it didn't mean that law school didn't teach me a lot about the mitigation and the important parts, but you know, look, if you're going to be a great lawyer going up to an entrepreneur and saying no, because it's too risky is going to get you fired. The answer is, I understand what you're trying to achieve. Let's get you the best result. And I understand it's not going to be a perfect riskless situation, but that's what we do in startup world. I mean, how did you, how did you fall back in love with risk? Well, I I mean, I I think growing up in a family where business was was started and failed, uh, business was started and succeeded kind of allows you to see that, I mean, that stuff can happen, you know, And, and, and there's a lot of luck that goes into a successful business. Uh, there's a lot of hard hard work and grit, but there's a lot of hard work and grit that goes into uh, a failed business, and you know sometimes it doesn't it just doesn't work out. So there's no stigma with that. But you know, I, what one point I wanted to just return to on the venture capitalists is I don't know how VCs elsewhere in the country do it, but when you see Jason and the work he's did with Foundry is, and I've experienced firsthand uh, in my business is. He's a true partner. So, you know, it's not just, I would say it's about partnering with someone who helps you build your business rather than just provides the funding and the initial, you know, capital to get going. This is, this is someone who, you know, every decision from, you know, marketing plan to customer acquisition to uh, HR issues is there with you every step of the way. And, and so it's a very, um, 
it's it's just having that partner all throughout the process uh, and when if the business succeeds you feel that this person really deserves that outsize what people might say is outsized reward because they were there from day one through every every sort of setback and and challenge that you face. So, so this might actually become kind of like a reverse therapy session, like really weird. But like, like Michael and I, like I know in my brain, I'm like, I'm wishing we had found you guys like ten years ago, because <laughs> <Right. laughs> we've sort of been fumbling through being right. as I was pricing law, Michael's a counselor, but we've been small business owners, right. and that's okay. been one of I think of our challenges. And we we have taken risks, and we've we've had you know, mm-hmm. I, I love what you're saying when we've worked with great people who are also willing to take risks. We know, hey, people may or may not come to this. We're doing something different. It's been good for us, but it's it's a really hard environment to be in as well. We feel like we've sort of had to teach ourselves business. It's lonely. Look, but mm-hmm. being a CEO yeah. or company founder is the loneliest job in the world. Yes. It's so lonely. It's intellectually lonely. By the way, it's lonely when you're at a law firm and you go in a house and you're the only lawyer. Like, I think people don't understand that not having somebody next to you who's a partner breeds loneliness. And when you don't have somebody outside who's a mentor, you're lonely as well. And I think the beauty of the venture capital model when it works is this mentorship model where I want to be the call that the CEO says, I got, I can't tell anybody at the office that I'm scared or overwhelmed. That's not going to play well. Everybody's going to freak right. out. And what do I do? And so, yeah, I mean, it's, look, a part of our book is about if you don't want to be an armchair psychologist, don't go into law. And if you don't want to have empathy and don't want to practice empathy, don't go into the law. And if you're already in law school and these words are scary, you please read this book and please read these chapters because it's common. There's no way to avoid it. I had no idea that being a venture capitalist was going to be all that times a hundred. I yeah. mean, it, it, I, I wasn't prepared for it, loved it. Also though, I think it got tiring you know, after 20 years. Part of my reason I retired was whew, I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> Well, you're 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 singing from a sheet of music that that we love singing from as well. I mean, that's what our workshops have been about for years about bringing those kind of skills, the, the things that aren't emphasized in law school, alongside learning the analytical left brain analysis stuff. All those, I, I loathe the term soft skills. I refuse to use it. I just said it for purposes of identification. But it's the power skills. It's the. Uh, but I'm fascinated to hear you as a even as a, a, an investor of venture capitalists saying, I want to know when things are going wrong, because that might be something terrifying for a, a CEO or business owner to do to say, let me call the guy who's funding this whole operation and tell him I'm scared out of my wits. But when you cultivate that mindset from the start and you say, I'm here for support and, and you, you're, you're inviting that trust, you're inviting that I need to know. And, and, and you're kind of running counter to the the instinct a lot of people have to let's hide this, try to manage it myself, fix it myself, so nobody finds out, and that's what tends to get people yeah. in more trouble. Good, good luck with that. Good, good luck with you starting your first, second, or maybe third business versus somebody who's funded you know four hundred businesses over the past twenty years, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, there's there's three ways to to be, uh, as I like to say, there's sort of three ways to be helpful. One is to be smart, which you can't really control, right? We got one with whatever we got, we try to maximize. Two is your experience, which you don't really get to control either. I mean, to Alex's point, if you take, you make yourself uncomfortable, you can accelerate your experience, but you're not given everything. The three is be the most useful person in the room and that you can control. Like mm. be, any of us can be the most useful person in any situation. 
depending on what we're willing to do. And I always, you know, tell entrepreneurs that, look, you can't control how smart you are. You can't control your experience. Um, let me be useful to you. Let me fill in that third gap. <laughs> um, you already got my money. I can't get it back. We're partners at this point, right? Sure. And so, look, some VCs are jerks. They'll yell at the entrepreneur. It doesn't do any, do any good. But, you know, uh, in my case was, look, let's solve the problem together. When, and when you are uh, thinking about these principles, uh, are there a lot of them that would apply? Because a, a lot of our listeners or people who are lawyers, um, uh, you know, one of the things they don't cover in law school, it's starting to change. I don't know what they do at CU, but um, the business of running a law firm. If you are a small firm lawyer, you are an entrepreneur. You are a yeah. business owner. And yet we sort of have frowned upon, you know, we're a profession, not a business. But the reality is we've got to have some of that same support structure, that same sort of mindset. Can you speak to that, how some of the, the lessons you guys have learned, the things that you consider valuable might be helpful to people who are, you know, find themselves, hey, I know how to be a good lawyer. I'm not so sure I know how to run this whole business operation piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that goes to our point is to ask questions. I mean, there's in, in, in the law, there's lawyers love to hear themselves talk. And there's lots of lawyers who've successfully navigated that small shops, you in your community, even in where I grew up, 20, 20,000 people, there were small firms where, you know, single multi uh, three man shops uh, where you could go. And unfortunately they were generally all men at, in that town, but, um, and you could go and take them to lunch, ask them how they started their firm. What are the things that they're worried about? What do they keep, keeps them up at night. You know, how do they handle uh, getting clients? How do they handle having collecting uh, uh, for, from clients? So, you know, there's, I think you, I think you have to rely on your community and no matter how small it is. And you know, I think you got, you got to ask questions. Yeah. At CU, but what I didn't tell you was our VC 360 class. We stocked it with 40% of the MBAs. And we oh. would pit, and we would pair the MBAs up with the lawyers for projects and whatnot. And I would tease them mercilessly. Just I would rip on the MBAs as being stupid, not getting grades, and it was fake grad school. And I would teach the lawyers about being idiots around math and not understanding the word margin. Okay. And and for those of you who don't know what the word margin is, that means the profit, effectively the profit per hour. Right? You can bill an hour at three hundred dollars an hour, but how much you're actually making once we figure right. out the costs. A lot of lawyers just at the very basic of running small firms, don't even think about the word margin, which at the end of the day should be the only word that matters to your business. Um, I think that when you, I, I think that lawyers traditionally are terrible business runners. I think that there's a few of us, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back too much, but I did run uh, the business of Foundry Group in the back office and, and all that. I did start a company where I was the uh, original CEO. Um, it's a completely different skill set. And I think one right. of the travesties of the American justice system is they don't allow non-lawyers to be partners at firms. Right. If I was running a law firm, I would want to hire business runners, right. marketing people. And if they were great, I would want to cut them in for profits. But you can't right. do that right. because of the ethical rules. And, and, it's, and it's not like this in other countries. In other countries, you can hire business people. And so I think I know there's moves afoot in different states to change this. There's also a move afoot nationally to change this. But I do think that it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day billing hours rate and wanting mm -hmm. to please your clients. Because if you're a great lawyer, you, you're really all about your clients. And that's a good thing. 
But at the same day, at some, at some point, you got to be selfish and learn how to run a business. Well, we're starting to see more in larger law firms. There are they're hiring COOs or CFOs who are not just a lawyer who was willing or one of the partners who might have been yeah. able or it was their turn. I mean, I've seen in the different firms I've been in or consulted for or been with all different kinds of selection models. A friend of mine was on the lawyer, excuse me, on the litigation. He managed the litigation practice group. And then they're like, okay, now run the firm. Right. And even that's not the same exact right. skill set. And he found himself like, I am chairman of, you know, either the U.S. operations or the local office or whatever. And it's a whole different mindset. And, and you're right, it's comps differently. Um, there at least is a growing a, a willingness to admit, um, yes, we're lawyers, we're smart, but that does not mean we know everything. We don't have the substantive knowledge of accounting, of HR business operations of marketing, knowing, even knowing, yeah. yeah, business marketing. generation, conflict resolution. I mean, what I find, I, I do some consulting for law firms about their business models, and I find it very funny. You business, the business model seems to be sort of poles. Law firms either take their best lawyers with the biggest books of business with the highest prestige and take them offline to run the <laughs> firm, or they take the lawyers who are administrative who can't generate business, who nobody really respects as lawyers because they can't find clients and they put them to lead the firm. Right. Like those are the two types of lawyers who lead large firms. And then there's all this stuff in the middle. None of them are involved and either model sucks. Right. <laughs> right. right. It's, it's not, it, it, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's misallocation of gifting strengths and the, the tasks that a job requires. Yeah, I mean, look, there's many, there's multi, there's several billion dollar law firms out there, right? There's many of them now, right? Billion dollar top line revenue. And I look at the management teams as a venture capitalist and I go, I wouldn't invest in that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the wrong management team. Well, hmm. and we've seen a lot of fragility in that and we've seen how the, you know, the, the, the different sides of it. I, I wanted to, to, to drill down in on, you know, the focus of, of your book is really, um, you know, towards sort of the individual, the person, I know you've got some things that address for people. You might go into big law, you might go into other things. Um, we, we are really all about, we love, uh, we've done solo and small firm conferences. We've done training for larger law firms and, and kind of our core, you know, of what we like to talk about is how can you thrive? What are some principles that can work for thriving wherever you are, whatever kind of setting you find in? I, I love uh, the title that you have in uh, your chapter 14 first, that talks about just um, being the calmest person in the room and dealing with something that we do run into in law a lot, challenging personalities. Um, what are some of the insights there that you've learned that can help people in just, you know, being uh, better team players, better people to work with as we're trying to, whether it's build a business, build a law firm, or just practice even in a government or, or nonprofit type setting? I, I think for, Jason and I, but one thing that's really helped us is is not being myopic in terms of the law or our our business career is everything. Having passions outside of that and developing those passions, spending time on those, working with them with the same sort of uh, rigor that we do uh, in our careers. And uh, I think that allows you to have, as Jason says in the book, to have an identity apart from your professional career or your business career or anything like that. And it, it gives you a confidence um, and I, just a, a balance that I think is incredibly uh, necessary. 
Um, yeah, I, I would say that the, the for me, when I would get in those situations where there would be a difficult player in the room or I could feel my adrenaline spiking, I could say this is no different than me missing six notes in front of 10,000 people on stage. You're going to be all right. You're going to recover. Don't let it get to your head. Like if I blew up every time I was on, something went wrong on stage, oh my God, I would not be able to do what I do, right? And to Alex's point, having a well-rounded life isn't just good for mental health and having an identity, which I think is step one, but it allows you in the heat of battle and when bullets are flying to understand what it feels like to have a heart rate increase, to have an adrenaline increase, to feel anger, to feel shame, to feel embarrassment, all these things that you felt in other parts of your life, which you know that there's not this, you know, fight or flight syndrome, which then takes the conversation, you know, AWOL for you and your client. And you actually introduced, um, you, you started jumping into the, uh, the area of thriving and how do we thrive as, as lawyers um, and introduced the idea of self-talk uh, yeah. in dealing with different pers- difficult personality or if you mess up on stage and how effective that is for you. Um, so one of, the, one of the things in the, uh, in the book that, or one of the subheadings you've actually came up twice was having a learning mindset. And to me, I'm I'm curious what you mean by that, because I know I will talk to lawyers about that a lot because often, well, I I won't go there and and talk about what I, how I define that, but how do you define learning mindset? Well, I think we do it two ways. One is the obvious, which is if you're not learning more about your craft and about all that, then you're dead. You won't, you won't be able to generate it. Mm-hmm. A good, a, you won't be a great lawyer. Um, if you want to be a great lawyer, you got to keep learning. And I find uh, litigators traditionally do that better than corporate folks because every case is something brand new. But that's the easy one. the The harder one is a learning mindset about yourself mm-hmm. and about what motivates you and what motivates the people around you and what keeps you happy and what doesn't. Because what made me happy in my twenties wasn't the same for my thirties and forties and fifties. I will say the best piece of advice I've gotten in the past five years. Uh, was from a, a gentleman named Jeff Pincus. I was struggling with, I, I'd screwed something up pretty badly. And, and uh, I was just down for like two or three days. And he's a friend of mine. And he said, hey, why is this bothering me so much? I'm like, because it was a freaking stupid mistake. Like, I saw this coming. I screwed it up. I'm too old. I'm too experienced to make this. Uh-huh. And I used very colorful language. I said, I'm an effing idiot. Right. And, 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 and he looked at me and says, I got a question for you. He says, if your best friend had made the same mistake and come to you and said, Jason, I made this mistake, would you have called him an effing idiot? That's right. And I said, no. And he said, well, yeah. what would you have said? And I was said, well, I said, Alex, like, you know what? You got four kids, you got three businesses, you're busy, you meant well. I understand where, where, why you made this. I probably would have made the same mistake. We live and we learn. You're going to get past this because you're smart. Right. And you're going to figure this out. That's right. And, and he's like, so why wouldn't you treat yourself like your best friend? <laughs> That's why, beautiful. Why yeah. would you, why don't you practice self-compassion? Why don't you have, and so part of my learning mindset was actually studying this thing called self-compassion. And for a kid yeah. who grew up in inner city Detroit and government subsidized housing, not as yeah. my identity of self-compassion, right? My identity is still right. go hit people in the face. Right. But it was unbelievable. Including yourself. Of course. Definitely yeah. myself. Yeah. And so when I go back to the long-winded answer of learning mindset, it's an all-encompassing thing to me 
that's going to make you a better lawyer, a happy, a happier person, a better husband, a better father, a better lawyer, a better drummer, a better everything, continuing to learn the best practices for life. Yeah. yeah. And, there, and, and Alex, I'll come to you in one second, but I would ask Alex too, would you talk to your child like that? <laughs> the way you talk to yourself. And hopefully the answer is no, right? No, absolutely. Maybe he talks to himself better than I do. We don't know this. Maybe he's, he's Good. more evolved than I am. There you go, Alex. How you know, would you and, answer and, that? And I think that's <laughs> tough. I mean, we're all, we're all driven. We're all probably type A people. And so, yeah, I think we're always harder on ourselves than we, and we are on others. Yeah. And I think so that's, that's a, always an ongoing uh, challenge. But I think if you talk with any entrepreneur, if you talk with Jason about how they learn, and it's, you always learn from your mistakes. And entrepreneurs have uh, that glasses half full mentality, and they know to embrace mistakes. I don't think you'll talk to a single entrepreneur in this country who'd said, yeah, I learned, we, you know, had a great success, and I learned so much from that. It's right. always the businesses that failed, the opportunities they lost. And, you know, I have that every day. I had one this morning. <laughs> well, that's so important for lawyers to hear because as I'm, I'm a therapist now, I've practiced law for a few years, many years ago. I work, uh, see clients with the lawyer assistance program in British Columbia, Canada. And often what I see with lawyers, and this is a generalization, of course, is lawyers have a fixed mindset not a growth mindset, not a learning mindset. They think that they are finished products. And if they make a mistake, that's the end of the world. I shouldn't make a mistake. I should have everything figured out. And instead of having self-compassion, they beat themselves up and then they shut down. And when you shut down, you don't learn and grow. You, and so, so your message is really important for our listeners to hear that you learn from mistakes you learn from failures and for the two of you i'm sure you've had plenty of failures because you've taken lots of risks i think we have part of the challenge we have at least having been a litigation attorney and not as much a transactional attorney um we have this adversity uh this adverse reaction to failure because our cases are win loss true and a lot of them are zero sum not all of them that's part of what got me out of practicing litigation actively and and where I'm, i'm much happier as a mediator and a peacemaker and somebody trying to you know, be a problem solver because it is win-lose because somebody gets custody and somebody loses or, or you have to split it in a way and, and people feel like they lose. The adversary system is sort of against us there because there's only two options. Um, if you just, you know, kind of buy into that. Uh, whereas, uh, everybody in the, uh, I, in fact, I, um, I've been doing some, uh, just had some business coaching and stuff recently. And one of the things that gosh was worth every penny I paid to this coach was they said, when you're putting out this particular product or something, they said, treat it like a science experiment instead of a final exam. And I was like, Oh Mm -hmm. dang, that's good. Because I recognized it exposed. I treat everything like a final exam. I got to crush it. I got to get it right on the first try. And that puts a lot of pressure on, and, and, and a lot of the things that we do as lawyers are sort of like that, one hearing, one day, one argument, whatever. But, but a lot of the business works is you iterate, you try, you want to fail fast, learn from it, and, and, and you know, do some, try something again. Um, it's one of the I'll biggest- speak to that, sort of how you deal with that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's one of the biggest mistakes junior lawyers make is thinking they got to be right. It's yeah. preposterous. You don't know shit. Pardon my French. You don't know <laughs> yeah. anything coming out of law school. Nothing. 
<laughs> and that's why we wrote the book. And part of it, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail. Here's some strategies which can lessen your chances of making mistakes and lessen your failure. But you have to know you're going to fail. But Jason, if, let me interrupt yeah. you for a second there. Sure. I, I, I see young lawyers, young associates, and they're so scared of making mistakes because the pressure's on them to become partners. And they and they feel if if I don't show that I can figure things out on my own, that I can handle this stress, that I can get the billable hours without making mistakes, then I'm not going to become partner. Um, so how do you respond, either of you or both of you, how do you respond to a young associate who's dealing with that? I'd say you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's not about making partner. It's about becoming a great lawyer and becoming a happy lawyer. If you are at a firm that that is not enough to make partner, you're at the wrong firm. And it's as simple as that. And your goal is to become a great human, a great lawyer, and and in a sustainable way that you have mental health that will allow creativity to keep flowing, that will allow you to work the long hours, that will allow you not to make the stupid mistake that I made because I was overworked and tired and beat myself up for it. Like it's a bigger picture than make partner. You will not make partner if you're not a great lawyer and you're not mentally healthy. So that's the focus. And part of that encapsules learning mindset, failing, taking responsibility when you do, fixing your problems. Also realizing that so few mistakes as a lawyer are unfixable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you don't look stupid in front of the senior associate. And it doesn't mean that you might not have to eat crow in front of the client. Okay, got it. We've all done it. But there's actually not, a, especially as an early lawyer, I would argue that if your employer puts you in a position to make a massive decision that destroys your client as a junior lawyer, that's a problem with your employer, not on you. Yeah, yeah and, and, and in in, uh, in Canada, actually, they've got something called articling. I don't know if you've heard of that before. I have. Or, yeah, which is fantastic. I wish the U.S. had something like that where out of law school, you work for nine or 10 months with a firm. And then you can, if the firm, if you want to stay and the firm wants to offer you a job, then you can get a permanent position there. But at the least, you, for those first few months, you can get a flavor for what this place is like. And uh, unfortunately, I've had actually two recent articling students who have had nightmare experiences at their law firms, just been abused and have both left. Uh, and they've had the opportunity to see uh, this is not a place I want to be. So Jason, I like your answer that get uh, situated in a firm that is, that's a good culture fit for you and values fit for you. And, and even if you pick the wrong one, yeah, you don't live, have to live by the firm's rules. You're not going to be there forever. You know, you pick the wrong firm, use it to maximize the, you, the brand of you, the excellence of you, the happiness of you, like that can be done. This is a, as Alex said so eloquently, I'll, I'll say it worse than he is. He got a law degree because he thought that was a great backdrop for whatever he was going to do, right? We learn critical thinking. We learn all these other things. This is not your last job. This is your first job. The days of staying at a firm for 30, 40 years, that's a different right. generation. Could yeah. happen. And congratulations if you're happy. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. But always focus on you. That's one of the things I loved when I when I taught law school for the three years that I did, being able to speak to the students and say, there's so much 
energy, pressure, expectation put on that first job, think of it as a first job. I know so I know a few people who found a firm and stayed there forever, but that is not the majority. And it certainly wasn't my story. Lots of people have have had to, you know, try different things because they don't even tell you about everything you can do as a lawyer. Now there's who comes on campus and recruits and what jobs are available. Um, and that's not the same as what all is out there. You know, you have I to tell, go and beat the bushes some. I tell my students, your first job is a paid PhD. Oh, you are, not, you look are at. not done with your education. You got through grad school. Halla, congratulations. Yay, you know nothing. Yes. Now you're going to go get your PhD. But guess what? Unlike every other you know, uh, school in the world, they're going to pay you. Yes. That's your attitude. You're getting a paid PhD. So, Jason, there's another phrase you said that I want to seize on, and it, it, maybe it's a song on your past album, or maybe it'll be a song on your next album, The Happiness of You. Like, that strikes me as that could be a song title, don't you think? I don't know. If I come out with a song called The Happiness of You, I'm going to get routinely mocked by all my friends in Detroit. <laughs> it, sounds like it, could be a, it sounds like it could be a good Herman's Hermits song. Yeah, maybe. or like maybe maybe Taylor Swift. <laughs> You know, the oh. happiness of you or like, or actually it sounds more like a commercial when I sing it that it way. Does. Right. Paul Anka, maybe. Oh my God. I'm you are my age. You are dating us. Age. Paul Anka was the first show I ever went to. He opened up for Sean Anna. That's how old I am. Oh <laughs> my gosh. You did just date yourself there, dude. Yeah. Alex, what do you think? We've been rambling about nothing in, in so far. I, I know you've got some thoughts. Well, you know, one thing I, I, I tell my kids and I tell other people, uh, people that I'm mentoring is, you know, don't focus on the outcome. And to Jason's point is, I think when we go to law school, we're like, well, once I get, once I get the job at the big firm, and then you're at the big firm, once I get to be, you know, senior associate, and then once I get to be yeah. partner, embrace the process, yeah. uh, really engage in the process, you're going to get a lot more enjoyment out of it. And understand that it's transient. I mean, that it just because it takes you 2x the time to solve a problem, it's not going to always take you 2x to, to solve that problem. And you can only bill right. for 70% of that or 50% of that. Realize that's going to pass like all things do. But you're learning, you're developing, and you're adding to your brand, you're adding to your education, you're adding to that PhD. That's an intangible value that you can't put a, put a number on. Yeah, well, you're, already speak, you're already speaking more comprehensively um, about just kind of that transition to being a young lawyer than really most of what most of us got in law school. It was get the job, go do the okay. job, just go start. And I remember uh, when I went to work for the, when I went to teach law school, they gave us a business book. They gave us the book of Yoel, probably familiar with Jim Collins is good to great. Yep. Which I didn't read business books. I was an English major and a poli sci <laughs> major. So I didn't know what business school was. I'm like, Buy low, sell high. How hard is it? I don't get it. You know, location, but, location, location. Exactly. That's real estate. <laughs> it wasn't interesting to me, but I, that was the first business book I read because, and it was fascinating because it was, well, here's companies, he pits companies that were at the same sort of position and had the same good things going for him, but some of them took off and some of them didn't. What's the difference? And he tried to look across industries and it, I was fascinated that sort of started this journey of, oh my gosh, business principles are something to think about. Um, that, that we could actually, you know, incorporate into if, if you're running a small firm, running a small business, or as we coach and, and counsel our clients, you know, it helps to know their world if we're I, dealing with business folks. I think what you're talking about is the word perspective. I think yeah. we haven't used the word in this in this podcast, but it, it's been it's underlined every discussion we've had. 
It's underlined how to survive the mistakes you make. It's how to be happy. It's how to be the calmest person in the room. It's how to have a learning mindset. It's all about having a perspective that's greater than being a lawyer, going back to the point of have an identity outside of being a lawyer. Otherwise, this profession will drive you insane, right? I'm going to steal Alex's line. Alex did some research and found out that the least two happy professions in the world were accounting and lawyers, but lawyers had higher degrees of substance abuse problems. Mm-hmm. What was the happiest? It was like lumberjack and what else? Any, basically anything outdoors. Okay, anything outdoors. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 yes. Yeah, and lumberjacks. I just, I, yes. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a bad situation where I can feel the mental anguish, insecurity, insanity, whatever you want, and being able to take a breath and remember that I am more than a lawyer. Oh, I have, I, I have friends that love me, family that relies and loves me, um, relationships, music, uh, you know, running, hiking, like always keeping in perspective that this is not, this job is not the end all be all. Me being a lawyer is not the end all be all. This client's problems, while I empathize and I want to help them, it's not my problem. I have to be able to go home at the end of the day. And, you know, I'm so happy that we can talk about mental the mental game because this was, you know, forbidden when the four of us came up. Right? It was a yeah. sign of weakness. If we if I'd had this conversation in my interviews with law firms, I would have been kicked out of the door. Cup couple things, Jason, I just want to follow <laughs> yeah. up on with you on that. You said uh, perspective, but the, the nice thing about your book is you discuss mentors. Yeah. And so it's also about others' perspectives that we shouldn't be isolated. And the only way we can only see things the way we see things. So you, Jason, you shared that great conversation you had with, with, uh, I don't know if he was a mentor, but helped you understand the whole idea of it's, I think, I think it was a story about it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes to help. Self-compassion. It's about how you deal. It's how you deal with the failure. Somebody catch you and catch how you're talking to yourself even. Yeah. Yeah. So it's important to, to, for lawyers listening to have other perspectives to it, to hear from others it's by the way that little thing now whenever i catch myself beating myself up and i actually force myself to pretend i'm talking to somebody like alex i i literally do it in my brain yeah. it's rewired and about it yeah. took me about six months to completely rewire my brain to now yeah. when i have one of those situations i'm like more in football coaching rah 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 right. let's get him next time yes bro. and not falling down the depth of despair well it, yes. it's funny uh, michael i don't know if you're thinking the same thing i have but but michael and i have spoken about this concept to lawyers you know around really literally around the world and and yet we still you know we're all sort of better coaches than players uh you know we, we're, we're <laughs> i want to be the player i want to be michael the player yeah, Michael and I have seen each other at at our moments when our self talk is sort of the worst, uh, yeah. and and you know where we're like we know the other, we know the other person knows you know well that's not a healthy way to talk to yourself, yeah. but you're when you're in the midst of it when you're sort of beyond you know the, the 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 moment is happening and you're you're sort of you know on that path and I like how you all advocate for just you know you got to slow down, pause, get regain perspective, talk to somebody get outside all those things i talked to i talked to somebody in my head i talked to i pick a friend an actual real person and i've committed that as soon as i start going down that road nope not doing it i noticed if i yeah if i address myself by my full name that's not a good conversation like you know (laughs) i'm like that's dad's voice from this big and yes you know 
Um, I, I'm, I'm interested by the idea too, what you said of the identity is more, you know, and we, Michael and I've even started, you know, shifting with encouraging people to say not, I am a lawyer, but rather I practice the law. There is a thing that I do that is practicing law and it's important, but it is not the only identity I have. Uh, and that's been a journey for me as, you know, there was a time I was a professor and then I had to let that identity go, but I still wish people would call me that. You know, I kind of, I like it. There's this, uh, in fact, yes, you guys watch, <laughs> side note, there's a guy who's the professor of rock and does these awesome YouTube videos just explaining these, you know, how certain songs came to be and how a lot of them were accidental and all this stuff. And I love it. I'm like, Have you watched Rick Beato then? Yes, I love Beato. Yeah, yes. Beato's amazing. Okay, good. Right. So good. But, but I love, you know, but I had to let go of that identity because of the way my law school kind of, you know, history played out. Uh, not mine, but the law school itself does not exist any longer. A, a failed story of venture capital. We can talk about it another time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but even now, you know, as I am not a litigator anymore, um, and letting go, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've been in a wrestling match about letting go of an identity, my identity as a lawyer. But if I remember myself, wait, my identity really is more, that's just one of the, one of the descriptors you would use for me. And I hope it's not the only doggone one. Um, uh, but, but kind of, I, I love Michael, but I didn't want to derail from, you had a couple of questions I think you want to go to or, or pick up on that. Well, actually I want, yeah, I do want to, I just want to go to Alex. I saw Alex, you're nodding your head vigorously. I'm just curious as to yeah, what it, you, you think about what Chris was saying. You know, it, when I was in, in the Midwest and, and then, you know, if you're on the East coast, you, you, people ask you, what do you do? <laughs> right. And you say, well, I'm a lawyer or I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a, you know, whatever. And moving to Jason and I both live in this this uh, beautiful town that we love, Boulder, Colorado. And the big shock for me was when I moved here about the same time Jason did, people wouldn't ask me what I did. They could care mm. less. They said, what do you do on the weekend? What do you like to do outside? You nice. Know? And first night I was here, I was talking to this cute girl at a bar and she said, what do you do? And I told her I was a venture capitalist. I don't know if that is, don't care. What do you do outside? Oh, wow. <laughs> first night I had moved a bullet. I was like, okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> got it. And, and, and so, you know, I tried to incorporate that wherever I am and try to uh, flip the script and say, you know, ask someone, avoid asking, you know, what their uh, profession is or, you know, what, what their business is. And I think, and, and then I had a good piece of advice from a, from a mentor who said, you know, even when you get that question, you can turn that into, you know, what is your, what is your passion? What is your purpose? Mm -hmm. So if someone asked me, what do I do? You know, I work on helping people uh, figure out how to pass their wealth on in a much more positive way. Uh, than we've than we've experienced. Solve the problems of generational wealth. Do you remember the question you asked me? You probably don't. I remember it was really unique when we met the night we met. You asked me how I was connected to the party, uh -huh. uh. and not what I did, but how I was connected to the party, which is a completely old. Because by the way, I could be a caterer. Right. I could be Dan. It was a guy's name Dan Thurber. I could be his guitar teacher. I could work for him or with him, or could have been an investor in him. And my answer was, oh, well, I've known Dan for a while, but my wife is their interior designer, which went in a totally different direction. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And and because mm -hmm. you asked a question that wasn't limiting right. um, mm -hmm. and didn't force me to come up with, well, I'm a venture capitalist and I know mm -hmm. Dan because we're in the same ecosystem, blah, 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 boring, boring, boring. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, that, that rule, never ask a question you don't know the answer to, that is just for trial. That's only right, yes, for trial. Right, right, right. And Which, all, right. otherwise, uh, in fact, uh, Michael and I talk about this a lot, but uh, one of the articles that changed my practice, but also my life, was an article called How to Take Better Depositions and Possibly Improve Your Marriage. And it was By about, not taking a deposition at your marriage. Right, exactly, exactly. It's basically about asking questions and having curiosity and listening to the answer, active listening yeah. and caring about the answer and, and being curious. And so I remember the case I had going on. I was uh, representing a lawyer who had been absolutely just slammed by a local paper and they were labeled as a crook and terrible and stuff. And I was taking the deposition of the, the guy who wrote the article itself. Uh, that was published that was a hatchet piece on my client but i adopted this curiosity approach and this kind of active listing approach and it was money it was so helpful i learned he was actually a really good journalist had his whole long background he and i were having this great conversation and then when it came time he's like what happened with this article he was it came out he didn't say it so straight out but he was working for a bunch of hacks who basically he became my star witness because i didn't treat him as the enemy i didn't try to pin him down well you wrote this and you didn't know it did you you know Instead, I'm like, well, tell me more about that. Oh, what, what do you usually do when you're doing that? And how does that work? And he gave me all this great stuff that I came back and, you know, was able to smack the employer with. And he was kind of, you know, not unhappy. Chris, as a, as a fellow musician, I learned active listening as a musician Ooh. on stage in yes. jazz bands or jam bands where you are, you are working, right? You're mm-hmm. not just listening, you're active. Yes. Right? You're doing something. And at the same time, you're listening to what everybody else is doing and having to make decisions in the moment and keep the heart rate down. And sometimes it goes off rails and sometimes it doesn't. It was for those of you out there who do play music, I would highly encourage to realize the active listening skills you have there are completely transportable to the practice of law. That's a great point. Oh, I like that. Well, we're kind of getting at uh, our time frame, guys. Here, you guys have been very generous to come and spend over an hour with hour with us. I have a feeling we could we could talk more about other stuff. There's deeper stuff to dive into in your book. Maybe we'll bring you back for a, a second episode later down the road. Um, in the meantime, uh, where can folks find you if they want to know more about what you guys are up to? Obviously, the book is "How to Be a Lawyer: The Path from Law School Success." Jason Mendelson and Alex Paul. Published by Wiley, I'm assuming it's available Amazon and the usual places. It is available everywhere. Everywhere fine books are sold. (laughs) I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) And what? So, real quick, in a sentence or two, what do you see? What What's you guys' vision for how you know now, given where you are at the you know published author, and um, you kind of you know stepped back from some of your ventures and things. But what's your you know what's your engagement with the practice of law do you think look like going forward what do you and what do you hope will happen from that engagement you want to go first you go first oh good okay put me on that <laughs> all right i stumped uh, him i stumped him michael now i mean my engagement in law right now is 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 evolving i i spend all of my time the the only lawyer time i spend now is spent either teaching at cu or this book, or what other ideas I'm going to have to try to help the next generation have a better existence than than we did, or helping nonprofits being a way, 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 way more experienced and better lawyer than they can usually afford, and trying okay. to help them because yeah. at the end of the day, um, we we want our nonprofits to succeed. So that'll be my sort of lawyer path going forward for the foreseeable future. But it wouldn't surprise me if it changed because my whole life has been changed. 
Yeah. I love how you're normalizing the idea of, of transience and change. Uh, I, you know, it's so, so uh, counter to kind of how we're, we're, we're certainly taught to think, but yeah. How about you, Alex? Yeah. I, I, I see it as working more with uh, my law school in Northwestern and I'm, I'm uh, still involved with the school and I, I see it as really at a crossroads and the practice of law is changing. There's a lot of, you know, change in higher education. The cost is unsustainable. There's just a lot of challenges, I think, facing uh, law schools going forward. And I hope that uh, working with, we have a new leadership there um, that's, in, you know, embracing some some new ideas. And I'm hoping that we can craft a model that hope would be an example to other schools across the country. But it, that sounds- you know, it's hard. It's it's There's a lot of constituencies that uh, are vested in keeping things the same. We'll definitely have to get you back to talk about that. That's something that we're passionate about as well and connected with folks who are who have been working and doing a lot of good work to try to bring more of these principles into play while you have the law students there, while you know, while they're moldable and shapeable yeah. and, and before we send them out into the world. And so uh love to stay in touch uh, about that sort of thing. I'm going to play our outro music now. And if you all hang with us, we'll chat with you once uh, that's played and and we stop recording so thanks, thanks everybody for joining us thanks for having us yep, thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the thriving lawyers podcast we love hearing from our loyal listeners so please feel free to email us any questions comments suggested topics or guest recommendations at the following address feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com the Thriving Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. Thank you.